Hey everybody, Todd here. Welcome back to Game Dev Breakdown. Tonight we're talking to our friend Matt Bradley Shurgi again, who has a new book out to talk about, and uh, we just have a fun time goofing around. So I just want to remind you quickly, we have a new Discord server where, you know, if you're working remotely during the day, working somewhere else during the day, and you would just like to hang out with uh, like-minded folks, we'd love to have you. There's a post at CodeWritePlay.com where you can find a link to it. Uh, it's not hard to find at all. So check us out on Discord, and here's my chat with Matt. Good evening, fans. Tim Kittrow here, the voice of NBA Jam, and you're listening to the Game Dev Breakdown Podcast, brought to you by CodeWritePlay.com. Whoa, boom shakalaka. My mom gave birth in 1985. I was within a Pac-Man ghost, barely alive. In the Cold War, my only blanket was Tetris. I played Rampart with Reagan Rampage, the world for breakfast. The laundry mat was my sanctuary. That arcade was my church. Matt, how's it going? How are you, buddy? Good. You know, as well as I can be with this uh, COVID-19 stuff in its fourth munch. Month? I said munch. That makes no sense. Yeah, it, <laughs> yeah. It, it, it's just a total kind of losing track of time. I, uh, but yeah, otherwise I think it's it's going well. It's been a heck of a 2020. My family, we bought our first house, and I got laid off shortly after that, and then found a job, and then uh, yeah, so all kinds of crazy stuff going on. We get to to chat on Twitter a little bit and just keep up with what mm-hmm. the other's doing. So I kind of had that on my list to talk to you about because you, you moved. We yes. had all the pandemic unfold, and I think those were pretty close together, if not right on top of each other. Yeah, not only that, but like when um, one day into moving, my car got hit by another car and had to go to the shop to get repaired. Fortunately, when we moved into the new house, it was a quarter mile away from where we were living before. So um, it it could have been a lot more of a pain in the ass. (laughs) So, so you didn't have to go too far, uh, but then you got laid off. Was that, uh, I mean, I'm sure that's not part of the plan. No. And and, in fact, in a way, I'm glad it happened when it did, because I was able to use that time to finish getting stuff out of the storage unit and everything. (laughs) Uh, I mean, when, when you move into a, any place, but a, a house in particular, and this is a two-story kind of townhouse thing, it takes much longer to do anything than you would think it normally would. Uh, for all the things I've done right, well, <laughs> uh, moving has been something I've done much too much of. Mm, I'm, sure. I, I lived many places growing up. I've moved uh, four or five times since uh, since we got married alone, and, and man, what a... What a mess. It's all the preparation, all the planning in the world immediately falls apart when you move. So. Definitely. So then the pandemic unfolds. You transition into a new gig. Mm-hmm. I mean, how's that? That's That's got to be tough to start a new job right now. Uh, uh, you know, the weird thing was, uh, although they have an office in uh, southeast Portland, it had the company only had me in there for less than a week because that same week they decided they were going to move everyone to work from home. And this would have been, um, if not mid-August, perhaps, or not August, if not mid-March, perhaps the week after. Yeah. So it was fairly, I think, early for that sort of thing, but I, I'm, I'm glad they did so. And I, I do um, QA work. I think I mentioned this last time. I do testing for like different uh, apps on phones and, and websites and things. But this place involved a hardware component because some of one of the teams I was on was working on testing a, a smartphone app that worked with laundry machines. 
So I have all these like hacked up laundry machines on my dining room table, <laughs> <laughs> replacing the firmware and so forth. I mean, it was, it, it was good, but it was, uh, it's strange to start a job and start working from home. And then you have to, where before, if you, if you needed to give someone a piece of hardware, you just would take it from their desk. But now it involves like a, a 20 minute drive to exchange equipment. Yeah. Testing is such a hard thing, especially for mobile. Uh, the last contract mm-hmm. I worked on remotely was, uh, I, I had a wonderful time. I've told everybody I've enjoyed this so much, but I was working with a startup that was doing like augmented reality and virtual reality in the same app for kids to work with like books. So you can like unfold the mm-hmm. book on the table, point your phone at it and like an animation will play over the page. Very cool. Okay. Uh, yeah. They're, they're going to do great things with this. And I was really happy to be able to contribute for a short time, but the, you don't think about the hardware aspect of it until you're, you know, you know, you have your phone. It works on my phone. I need an Android phone to check out. I need to f- see if I have an old iPhone in the garage. Uh, I'm and yeah, while, while I'm at home and my contract manager is at home, like we're mailing stuff to each other at the post yeah. office and going and buying things. It's, it's such a mess. It's a far cry from my QA days straight out of college in like, I don't know, Oh five when it was like, try our new business management software and just tell us if anything's wrong. Those were simpler times. Certainly simpler times. And, um, it does make you kind of respect what Apple does with the iPhone in that it's a pretty standard interface with the operating system across all the devices. But with, uh, you know, if you're at a Samsung or a Google Pixel, it's all slightly different. Oh. And it's it's just different enough to be annoying where you're like, okay, where do I go to turn off location tracking to test out this one thing? And Yeah, so it's – but uh, I, I like it. You know, I like working on mobile, I think, more than the, the desktop apps, partially because they, they tend to be sort of – simpler but i've uh the first time i tested on a phone like it really i would get pretty bad uh, wrist pain um and and since then i've i do stretches and i uh mix up what finger i'm using on the device it sounds so silly but no. you get that repetitive <laughs> stress uh, if you think you do it a lot playing uh I, I don't know a game like candy crush i don't really play those cell phone games that much when you're testing you're really smacking the same area on the screen over and over and over again and it can uh it can do a number on you yeah, I've I've had that, and I'm sure uh, listeners will go, yeah, me too. But you get that weird, like, hot sensation on one Ugh. fingertip, and you know it's like time to mix it up. Uh, stuff you never picture going into it. So, um, so since we've talked to you last, you had the release of your your book on the films of Uva Ball, uh, Volume yep. One, the video game movies, two thousand three to two thousand fourteen. Could you please shorten the titles of your books? <laughs> I, I did want to hear more about how, how that went after it came out because I got to go through it. And it's it's such a cool guide to, like, you know, movies that people discuss. So, I mean, how are people liking that? Oh, thanks. You know, it, it really varies. Uh, out of I, I did try to reach out to some review outlets. Uh, one of them did do a review. It was a negative review. And I, I was expecting a negative review, but I, one line from it does stand out. It says, uh, witless prose. Uh, was in there somewhere, and I was <laughs> highly amused. You know, I've written many, many a negative review myself for, for movies or whatever. I've been writing online since, oh my god, like 94 or something when I was in middle school, having my dumb little websites. And uh, to read someone write something like that about something you put, oh, like a, it took me a year and a half to write that first book. 
is is a is a surreal weird experience. I I did hear back from uh one of the actors, uh Chris Coppola is is in some of those films and he him, he sent me a nice letter on Twitter saying thank you that he wasn't used to getting compliments for Uwe Boll movies. Nice. Um, I got a, a, an email from Uwe Boll himself, which I wasn't expecting. Uh, honestly, the kind of reaction from Uwe Boll's Facebook page was probably the most positive reaction I've gotten. Otherwise, I haven't really heard too much about it. Maybe maybe the weirdest thing was I was uh, shortly after it got published, I bought myself an extra copy and I signed it and I, I, I did a live version of my sequel cast uh, movie podcast at, at a local convention. I think it might have been Portland Retro Game Expo, maybe. And as I give away prizes as a gimmick for asking like stupid trivia questions to the audience. And one of the prizes was a signed copy of my book because why not? And yeah. and the guy that, that answered the question correctly, he goes up, he's um, looks like he's in his forties or fifties. And as soon as he, he takes the book, he says, you don't mind if I sell this, right? <laughs> and I said, I said, no, it's your book now. I don't care what you do with it. But to get that immediately <laughs> is very strange. Uh, <laughs> How do you even process that? Yeah, I'm trying to it's imagine absolutely. hearing that myself. Like, uh, no, it's fine. <laughs> yeah, it's like it's something I don't have any control over. I mean, one thing that's quite strange—I don't have that much experience selling books online—is as soon as it popped up on Amazon for sale, it almost immediately had some people that bought it to resell it for like five dollars more. <laughs> that is not the first time I've heard that. Actually, I've heard from one oh, other yeah. author. Who, who pictured somebody going to the mailbox and basically accepting it in, in person from the mailman and putting it in a different package, and, you know, giving it back, like, not so fast. It, it's such a funny thing once you're in the, uh, well, I talk like I'm a published author, not at all, but even um, contributing one chapter to someone else's book, such a fascinating glimpse into that world. Uh, I, I don't envy the things that authors go through to sort of, you know, try to promote the product. Yeah, and that and that it's through a, a small press, uh, Moon Books Publishing or Moon Books Entertainment. It, it goes through a few different names. I'll look and see what it says in the cover. So I have this right, and it's not on the cover. That's fantastic. Um, <laughs> okay, so it's like Moon Books Publishing. I I believe is the name they want to go by. But yeah, it's um, I, the way I, I worked with the, the my publisher uh, Brandon is I just reached out to him on LinkedIn with the book pitch, and he was like, Yeah, it's fine. And I'm like, well, it's not supposed to be that easy, but uh, <laughs> sounds good. <laughs> yeah, like uh, okay. And so we hashed out a deal, and uh, yeah, it, it is fun getting to see those metrics. I, I mean, as as you know, like with podcast metrics and whatnot, it can get addictive looking at those things. And so oh, yeah. I, I try not to look at it too much, but it is sort of the thing that surprises me the most. I don't know if your reader or your listeners are interested in all this, but uh, if if you look at the if you even sell one copy of an ebook. Like it skyrockets so high on the rankings. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I've heard it's a that. lot less than you would think. Um, the difference between some of these things, so it's very odd. the The Audible version has has sold the most. Oh, um, I didn't know it made it to Audible. It did. Uh, I uh, this is a good story, I guess. Uh, the so the publisher reached out to me and said, Matt, do you want us to do? an audiobook version. And my first thought was, well, this is stupid. Who would want to hear an audiobook <laughs> of, like essays on films? But I just said, sure, because it's another potential revenue stream. Yeah. 
And I, I did sort of a, a sample, and he said, oh, this is great, Matt, you should do it. So I recorded the whole thing, and then my computer died, and I did not do a recent backup. So <laughs> after all that, we just decided on Audible to, he found a, a narrator to go do it, uh, Jonas Gaway, uh, a younger guy from uh, Wales, and he did a, he did a great job, and uh, turned out a good uh, audio version, and yeah, that's on Audible, and uh that's been selling the best out of all the versions, which surprised me. But on the other hand, I don't know. Like everyone has, not everyone, but you know, a lot of people have a smartphone with, with headphones and all these things and have a commute, or at least they used to have commutes. And, uh, and they listen to these things a lot and there's a big uh, hunger for them. And so you're starting to see all kinds of weird things in Audible that you never would, would have made it as like a, an audio book you could see at a bookstore. Yeah, and and it seems like they're putting a lot of emphasis on tying uh, audiobook versions into uh, print version purchases and stuff. Mm -hmm. Like, oh, buy this in print, you can listen to it. And and even the button while you're trying to read the book, I've noticed, it'll be like, wouldn't you rather be hearing this with your ears? You know, it's like, rest your eyes, just just stop and we'll read it to you. And so they're apparently just, just full speed on that. And Audible is also usually a fantastic uh, podcast ad partner too. We, I've done that in the past, so they're good folks. I mean, like I'm, I'm happy that uh, there's so many cool options as it pertains to uh, audiobooks these days. And they've been doing those original kind of uh, radio play style things, where it's done by a whole bunch of different actors. Yeah, uh, you know, the BBC has been doing that for oh my god, like decades. <laughs> yeah, uh, radio plays and just starting to kind of see some of that come up in the states is uh, interesting. It's come a long way, and even you know some older like Stephen King stuff that never got an audiobook now is getting stuff through Audible. So it's I've uh, heard that, yeah, yeah, yeah. reaches all over the place. Very cool. So, uh, but the book we're gonna really talk about here is your recent compilation of interviews with video game designers and such, called simply the best interviews with video game designers, composers, and scoflaws. How are we doing with that book now? Uh, it's doing. All right. You know, the feedback I got from people that did the quotes for it, including yourself, I might add. Thank you for that. Uh, oh, my pleasure. It was, you know, I'm getting kind of a better reaction to it than the OV Bull book. Um, I, I've got to really submit this one for reviews. I haven't done that part of it yet. But the sales aren't quite there yet. But I, I'm convinced they'll pop up here and again. Yeah, it was weird because the, the story behind this one, and I think I might have mentioned this a bit even last time we talked on this show, but... In in college, I was busy and felt like I needed even more to do. So on this website I did with my friend uh, from high school, Zach Huffman, uh, who's a journalism major, and I did game design at uh, SCAD, uh, Savannah College Art and Design. Um, we, we had a website called, it was originally called Extreme Movie Watchers, and then I think it was <laughs> called eBoredom. But it was it was the same site, basically, but we just did whatever we wanted, mainly like movie reviews or comedy articles or video game stuff. Yeah. And then with this, uh, when I got to eBoredom, I was just obsessed with doing interviews because I have a, had a big collection of interview books uh, with, with directors like Tim Burton or I loved pouring through the PC gamer, computer gaming world, uh, Nintendo Power magazines, that sort of stuff. Yeah. And so I said, well, I'm a college student. I bet if I reach out to these people and say, hey, I'm a college student. I got this website, blah, blah, blah. People will say yes. And I was surprised how many people did. I would say it was probably like a 75% success rate. But this was also back in from like 2003 to 2005. Yeah. And the internet was a very different place back then. It wasn't the Wild West, but you didn't have social media like it is now. Facebook wasn't out when I did these things. 
Um, <laughs> and so if you were just reaching out on the transom to talk to some of these people, they would. it was easier to find them, number one, and two, they'd be more likely to get back to you because they're not drowning in emails. Right. This book is kind of like a time capsule of really cool interviews with like surprising names. Uh, some that jump out from the list are Tom Hall, a you know, doom designer, Al Lowe of uh, leisure suit, Larry fame. You got to talk to uh, Fergus Urquhart of uh, obsidian. Who else is on the list? Enon Zur is a big one. It's just name after name of people. Uh, at, like you say, at this point, I would have a ton of trouble getting anyone. I, I feel like I might, I've said before I might be able to get Tom Hall because we interact on Twitter once in a while, mm -hmm. which I need yeah. to try to do because he's a great, awesome guy. But these these are big, big names, and it's just just this little bite-sized glimpse into their world, and it's it's a really fun read for that reason. Oh, thanks. In the book, they're done in alphabetical order, uh, but I still remember the very first one I did was with probably one of the less famous people, but someone that I knew about whose website I used to read as a fan when I was in middle school. And this is with Mandy Paw. She was the first female student at DigiPen in Canada, which I believe they have a Washington campus and Nintendo has something to do with that school. Mm -hmm. um, at the time, they only had one program that I think was like video game programming or something. I forget what they called it. Now they probably have a few of them. But she also is one of the biggest Mega Man fans out there and has, oh God, like reams of Mega Man fan fiction and all this stuff. And so going from someone like, like that who, who who's great to people like, I don't know, Yoshitaka Amano, who who did the, the Final Fantasy uh, illustrative kind of concept art for a lot of the older games. and That had to be translated too, didn't it? Yes. I mean, I talked to his representative and, and they got something to me. Uh, most of these were done through email. Yeah. Um, Enon Zur I talked on the phone with. Al Lowe, I used AOL Instant Messenger. That shows you how long ago that was. That's such a great uh, little tidbit about this. Yeah, but I mean, that at the time, you know, that was how a lot of people got in contact with each other. And even, it was at the very end of college when I was able to get into Facebook, when my college got on, when it was only for college students. And it was a real novelty to see like, oh, there's these people I knew from college and now they look 30 pounds heavier. <laughs> or, oh, they're living in this different state or, or whatever. Um, yeah. So it became this sort of obsession, kind of this madness. And as uh, my friend Zach points out in the intro, I had him write for me. Uh, it wasn't an appropriate fit for what our website was. I mean, it was really, <laughs> we're really trying to do more of like a something awful ripoff or something. But I, he said, I ruined his website with actual journalism or something <laughs> along those lines. So, and I, I think he's right at that point. And I'm not sure. What what drove the obsession? I just loved reading interviews, and you didn't have a lot of that, in, these kind of longer-form interviews, in content on gaming websites at that time. Maybe on IGN, but yeah, this was before 1UP.com. GameSpy was around, but yeah, I mean, I, I was reading gaming stuff uh, when I first used the internet on websites like Happy Puppy or <laughs> Nuke. Yeah. Or Nuked, uh, yeah, when there was barely anything on there. And I, I think that was even included in the uh, in the introduction or the, or the forward. This book is finally an appropriate place for this, you know, pretty mm -hmm. well done content <laughs> that was like otherwise stashed in a, you know, just sort of humor and geek culture thing that, that you guys were doing. Man, I really related to that because I've been a part of several websites much earlier on when you didn't have to just sort of look at it as like, okay, this person has another blog. And if I choose, I can go see what's on it. But it was like, we had a run at actually getting to do, you know, several contributors talking about a variety of things, horror and movies and music and great. 
after a certain point, it's like you can fall into such a groove that it's like you kind of need to take this somewhere, <laughs> sort of do something with it. So I, I definitely related to that about this book. The AOL Instant Messenger thing kills me because even <laughs> even just like four or five years ago, my very first it was my first paid interview that had been actually like accepted by an editor beforehand, wasn't written on spec or anything, was done in Skype, but it was done in chat because the hmm. the subject wasn't entirely comfortable, even though we in the grand scheme of things, we weren't talking about anything all that interesting. But later on, I saw this guy in a, not the indie game documentary, but a documentary about gamers and doing homebrew things and things like that and so I, I learned a lot after i actually got to know the person that way a little better but he was like he strictly wanted to talk in text over skype and i even thought to myself like jesus why don't we just do aim <laughs> the only reason i was able to still get a hold of this these interviews is from archive.org um mm -hmm. the internet wayback machine if it wasn't for that all this would have been lost to the great ether out there so i, I can't give that website enough thanks but yeah, so on the other hand, this wasn't really something I wrote from whole cloth. I wrote it when I was in college, you know, over a decade, almost 20 years ago now, Jesus Christ. So <laughs> I uh, cleaned up the spelling and the grammar. And the funniest thing for me for that, I spent three months doing that, some of which during which I was uh, unemployed, and uh, which was good because it gave me time to work on it while I was looking for work, of course. And at the time, I, th I thought I was real hot shit. I had really good spelling and grammar skills, and there were mistakes all over the fucking place. Like, th there's that, that sort of humbling of, oh, I've actually advanced somehow. Sure. And um, some questions I think I might have taken out because they just didn't reveal anything or they went on for too long. And one thing I was a bit influenced by was a recent, oh, I forget the name of the podcast, but one of them talked to Neil Gaiman uh, recently. Oh, wow. And he talked about he did uh, interviews and, and magazine journalism early in his career. Uh, in fact, one of his first I think his first book was a, a biography on Douglas Adams of uh, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy fame. I didn't and, know that. Mm -hmm, yeah, it's um, they did an updated version, which has newer chapters written by someone else, I think. But because he, he wrote it before he died, I think maybe four of the Hitchhiker's books had come out by that time uh, yeah. up to last chance to see if memory serves. But uh, anyhow. He mentioned how he interviewed all these people, and then when he'd write it, because he's a, a prose writer, it wouldn't be necessarily word for word what the person said, but kind of the spirit of what they said. Yeah. And, then the, and then the interviewees would get back to him and said, well, I've never been quoted so accurately when a lot of it was stuff that he'd made up. <laughs> so although I didn't quite do that, I would make some little tweaks here and there for uh, clarification, uh, yeah. kind of inspired by taking the Guyman's lead. And one at the time when I originally did it that I had to massage it the most is with the Eric Chahi, who designed Out of This World, which is known uh, outside of the U.S. as Another World, uh, a really influential game to me. Uh, it was kind of like Prince of Persia, but used this cool kind of polygonal look to it that didn't look like complete shit, which was <laughs> unusual for the time. Yeah. And these kind of rotoscope things where this little man... And you meet an alien dude in jail and you run around escaping and fighting things, solving puzzles. And so I tried to look up the guy's name and, and Google was around at that time, but it was still fairly new. And uh, I, this guy didn't have a website, but that was not so unusual. He was retired from the gaming industry at the time. And then one of my Google searches popped up the guy's name and, and I'm like, well, I don't know how common of a name Eric Chahi is. And it was a <laughs> bulletin board of people using high-end uh, cameras. 
And so I just reached out to him and I said, hey, are you the guy who did this game? And then he wrote back and said, oh, my God, yes, I am. Yes, yes, yes. Here, <sighs> do you want to? And when he got back to me, the answers he gave were, although they were in English, uh, I believe he's French, uh, there is extremely broken English. And so I had to really do a lot of heavy lifting to get it, you know, readable. And so yeah. th that's one of those <laughs> that really stuck out to me. And I told this to one of my college professors at the time, and the professor is arguing with me, like, aren't you misquoting the person? And I'm like, not really, because I, if I left it the way I got it in the email, it would look, with spelling mistakes and all, it would look really poor. Right. Like, it would make them look bad, and it would make me look bad. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not changing the intent. It's sort of like uh, sticking to the spirit of it. That That's exactly right. That's, that's the policy I personally adhere to, and I, I know a lot of industry writers who I've interacted with at least that's that's what they stick with as well um Nathan Munier has written a lot of good stuff on this topic including one book strictly on interviewing in the game industry which is uh mm. su such a funny niche but uh he he says in it it's a good idea to edit someone for clarity and the ultimate guide is if this person looks back at the sentence one is it going to stand out to them as like that is not what I said and is it going to make it look in any way like that's not what I meant? Obviously, those things are, you know, neither of those are okay. And otherwise, it's a good idea to pull. I mean, you're going to have to pull out stuff like um and uh and sure. just for that person's benefit. So, I mean, it's not uh, there's a school of thought where they say you should absolutely not touch anything a person says. But really, that's not what anyone wants. They do want it to be cleaned up for clarity purposes in almost any situation. So. Right. And so, I mean, one thing here I changed quite a bit. I haven't thought about this now. I'm just flipping through the book here. So in the beginning of each section, it has kind of a, a brief couple of paragraphs setting up who the person is that I'm interviewing for context. Originally, those went on for a lot longer and had things like website links. Well, so much time had passed. And because it's also a physical book as well as a Kindle book, I didn't want those websites in there. Yeah. Just because I would rather just get rid of them and not have stuff in there that might lead to like a, a porn site or I don't know yeah. what, what else it would be. God only knows, yeah. <laughs> and and I also, at the time, I thought these were brilliant little pieces. And as I reread them, like it just feels like bad Wikipedia fan fiction. So <laughs> I, I, I tried to really concentrate those early parts. Uh, one interview I remember being sort of, it was one of the two I did over the phone, I guess, besides uh, Inan Zur. I, I did it with uh, Mark Manassi, who wrote this crazy 400-page Wing Commander strategy guide yeah. called uh, Secrets of the Wing Commander Universe. And he cursed a lot in the interview, and I kept the curses <laughs> in, and he said, can you take them out? And I said, nope. <laughs> because I mean, that's fair. I think so. I mean, I I think it's more honest to <laughs> to curse than not curse, but... You don't stop a same... sentence and, like, you know, the word shit is off the record, by the way. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> that, that too was a bit... Odd, but I guess what really blew me away, he talks about, yeah, uh, this is, I, I got the page up right here uh, from Mark Manassi. Uh, game books are supposed to be 120 pages long. I turned in this 500 to 600 page book and the publisher said, oh my God, what are you doing? Keep in mind it covers eight games if you include all the expansions. And he, he paid for an illustrator out of his own pocket to do these custom illustrations. Uh, like I, I don't think the book did very well. But he had done much better doing all these books on like networking and so forth and more non-game stuff. 
Enjoy basketball, soccer, and all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using bonus code CAPITAL and your first wager is risk-free up to $1,000. Plus, when you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, player props, and daily boosted odds specials. Download the BetMGM app today or go to BetMGM.com and enter bonus code CAPITAL and place your first wager risk-free up to $1,000. Now you're winning with the king of sportsbooks. Visit BetMGM.com for terms and conditions. 21 years of age or older to wager. Washington, D.C. only. New customer offer. All promotions are subject to qualification and eligibility requirements. Rewards issued as non-withdrawable free bets or site credit. Free bets expire seven days from issuance. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-522-4700. Enjoy basketball, soccer, and all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using bonus code CAPITAL and your first wager is risk-free up to $1,000. Plus, when you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, player props, and daily boosted odds specials. Download the BetMGM app today or go to BetMGM.com and enter bonus code CAPITAL and place your first wager risk-free up to $1,000. Now you're winning with the king of sportsbooks. Visit BetMGM.com for terms and conditions. 21 years of age or older to wager. Washington, D.C. only. New customer offer. All promotions are subject to qualification and eligibility requirements. Rewards issued as non-withdrawable free bets or site credit. Free bets expire seven days from issuance. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-522-4700. What a what an ordeal though. That's yeah. That's but very his funny. was for Wing Commander one and two, maybe three. I don't know. But uh, Wing Commander one had two expansions, and then so did Wing Commander two. So it's been a while since I've read the book. I don't think I have a copy anymore. <laughs> but but yeah, I mean, and as far as the interview subjects being pretty broad, I have a lot of weird obsessive interests, and from all the, I mean, as a kid, you know, I would read. Nintendo Power as a seven-year-old and living in Argentina, and I had a subscription, but we'd get the issues really late. And yeah. you'd just be so excited to have anything in English you could read. I mean, we went to a private school, so it was in English most of the time. But uh, to have something that was my own that I could read, we didn't have a lot of... Um, we didn't own a lot of books. You had to go to the, the embassy or the school library to get books. Like, it was a real hassle to, to get anything. So oh, yeah, to, get sure. a, to, to get a magazine that was my own you know, magazine and... My friends subscribed to the same magazine and you could talk about it. And then the culture shock of going back to the United States when I was maybe in third grade, you go to a, a grocery store and they have like 20 video game magazines was kind of overwhelming. I felt a yeah. little bit like that scene in, oh, gee, it was that Oscar, the Hurt Locker where he goes back from war and he can't make up his mind what cereal to And there's, he's <laughs> staring at an aisle of like 50 cereals. Yeah. <laughs> like that was something I could relate to a good bit. It's funny because you mentioned uh, my uh, my buddy Rayan Ali who wrote the NBA Jam book and he mm -hmm. has a similar story because he grew up in Pakistan. And uh, so he would, you know, go through all of this process to get old wrestling tapes and magazines and just mm. any any yeah. cool thing he could. And now I'm, I'm sure he <laughs> feels a little, little overwhelmed by it. Right now we live, uh, I think it's about an hour and five minutes from where I was born. So... Um, I've moved around quite a bit, but it's never mm. been uh, out of the time zone, at least. So I've I've been fortunate just to travel. So I I've got respect for y'all and how you've adapted to uh, living all these different places. It's pretty cool. 
Thanks. Yeah, time zones are, are trickier than people think. People always get them messed up, even just three time zones in the U.S. I've been doing some freelancing recently for a fanatical, and they're based in England. And when they say they want something by Friday, what that really means is I need to get it done either on Thursday night or if I get up at 5 in the morning, it might be like 3 p.m. over there or something. I run into this with podcasting routinely. It's And even, mm-hmm. like you said, even, uh, even within the U.S., uh, somebody mm-hmm. in L.A., and sometimes it's me. Sometimes I'm the one thinking the wrong direction, like they're two hours behind, two hours ahead. And uh, I've, I've not missed any calls, but I've had some close calls <laughs> just because I'm not used to it. Sure. Something else that's interesting about this book is that some of these projects have been lost to time a little bit, too. Mm-hmm. And, and then on the other hand, uh, and it's not that I want to dwell on this or dig into it too deeply, but you'd also talk to Jeremy Soule, who at the very same time sort of came out in the news in a negative way. And I thought, oh, Man, yes. right. I think people are going to be surprised to see that name come up because, I mean, now there's no getting a hold of him right now. <laughs> uh, I bet. Jeremy Soule I, I just picked because I was a fan of that Dungeon Siege game and he did the music for that. And um, especially in the beginning of the game, it, it's this really, ironically, the, the beginning of the game is pretty similar to the beginning of the Uwe Boll film, In the Name of the King, A Dungeon Siege Tale, uh, whose title I never get tired of saying because <laughs> um, it's so long. It's a good one, yeah. Yeah, that's why I have long titles in my books. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> but um, I, I just reached out to him and that was, I mean, yeah, I, I just knew him from doing a few different games and it was fairly early I think in in his career and with this stuff recently I I did consider if I should cut that or not but on the other hand I thought it was a good interview I had a thing going with a lot of different composers Uh, certainly the music of of gaming has influenced me a lot in college and afterwards as my first podcast I did a video game music show so Hmm. I think that at, at that time, I mean, now now on iTunes and Spotify, the choice of video game music isn't that great, but yeah. it's still better than nothing. But back in 2004, 2005, uh, aside from one two-CD Final Fantasy set uh, that you could buy from GameStop exclusively, I think, there wasn't much you could get except for Taiwanese bootlegs at comic conventions. <laughs> so I would have to go to, uh, let's just say an IRC channel and find an FTP site to find um, video game music that wasn't uh, just Nintendo stuff. (laughs) And it was, I mean, you really had to get in the weeds to get a hold of anything back then. I mean, it was the precursor to the dark web, basically. (laughs) Yes, it was. (laughs) (laughs) And all we were after was like, uh, yeah, video game soundtracks, um, copies of RPG Maker that you couldn't really really use any other way. Yeah, Yeah, Um, that's right. Yep. And uh, <laughs> SNL clips that we had missed. I mean, like dumb stuff. Uh, my my yeah. earliest days on the internet were shameful, but only in that they were uninteresting. It's like, let's see what kind of Chris Farley stuff I can find. And, uh, you know, just dumb stuff like that. And then we were off playing Flash games. It was a simpler time. It was a simpler time. Uh, and I have to see if it's still up there. I don't know if it is. I did have some things put on Newgrounds. I did doing little dumb cartoons in Flash. Yeah. Uh, I would love to try and track down some of that stuff. Uh, like if I could find my old dumb game design projects from college. I did find one thing that I want to put together that I did in college once where it was between semesters. I was at home. My mom threw a party in the basement and someone brought over their uh, NES and 30 different games. And we just kind of set up like a tournament 
and I just filmed people. I didn't really film people playing the games, but I filmed people afterwards kind of trash talking each other. Oh yeah. But, uh, unfortunately I filmed it. I fil- so my camera was a high eight camera, which was eight millimeters Sony and the sound was digital, but it still kind of looked like shit. But because my computer was a piece of crap, God, I used some like USB thing to get the composite video over on there and then initially rendered it as real player files and then converted those to uh, Windows Media Video WMV files. So the resolution is awful. I tried looking at it on my phone and it looked bad on the phone. But I want to try and cut that back together uh, because on archive.org yet again, uh, I found all the files. So I want to do something with that. Uh, but, yeah, you should, because I mean that alone invented esports. Now we have, I, <laughs> now, now we have right, whole, right. whole industry. Yeah. <laughs> Instead of yeah, stadiums uh, for StarCraft Two or Street Fighter Five, it's uh, a couple of nerdy hicks in a basement playing Bible <laughs> Adventures, uh, <laughs> Mega Man Two. Um, yeah, it was the stuff we were playing. Is yeah, to capture the, vid- the video for the video games, I had to export video from some emulator oh it was such a such a different time yeah the the absence of youtube alone was such a nightmare because uh i've got several things that spring to mind just like this i was in a uh, even back in high school i was in like a senior english class and we had to do like a term project which Mm. there was a bunch of leeway on how we wanted to do it so i was getting into game development stuff. I was, I had my first copy of game maker when Mark Overmars name was still attached to it. And, uh, I was like, how, you know, how can I sort of turn heads here and do something neat? So I, what was it? I did, uh, the story of Julius Caesar as one giant gif. What? I did each frame by hand. So I took (sighs) like backgrounds from super Nintendo games and I took sprites from like Final Fantasy and got emulators for all these different things. And I, that's probably to this day the hardest I've ever worked on anything. And of course, because I wasn't really thinking it through, that was only ever going to work on my computer because I had, you know, loaded the frames individually and they were in memory and oh. the computer could interpret them. Uh. So I turned in this one GIF on a floppy disk to my teacher and she's like, what is this? <laughs> like, oh, just run it. It'll be great. She's like, yeah, it's just one picture pops up and I don't know what to do. And I'm like, uh, well, I guess you'll have to fail me. <laughs> and I definitely still don't have that anymore. And the other one was, there was kind of a version of that, that I did for my sister a couple of years later, where I did a flash animation to, uh, Dr. Worm by they might be giants. Mm-hmm. I animated that whole thing. And I wish, I wish to God I, I could find that again because that, that was actually very funny and I would love to show it around to this day because a lot of people still know about They Might Be Giants and uh, that's lost in the, the toilet of time. Toilet of time, yeah, that, that's, a, that's a good phrase. <laughs> I can do a coffee table book about people's stories about things that just don't even exist anymore. Uh, I mean, yeah, the thing you just said about YouTube was so smart because people take it for granted. And uh, back in my day, we had to do the work and, got, I mean, find a video codec to play a video file that might or might not be a virus. It was oh, yeah. so much wasted time. And at least YouTube or Vimeo, you know, it's kind of the great equalizer. You don't have to worry about as much risk to your computer to try and get all these things to work. Yeah, you you could learn Flash. You still wouldn't have 
loading screens unless you made them yourself and hosting it was still next to impossible for one person to just do. So it was like you could learn game design that way. Some people did and made very compelling stuff that would still hold up today. And just it was still next to impossible to uh, put it in front of anybody. So, I mean, like you've got Congregate that tried to sort of fill that vacuum more recently. And I think they just announced they're uh, shutting down new submissions. Like almost every version of this is Mm -hmm. on the way out now. So Right. And yet you got stuff like itch.io or itch.io, whatever, however you pronounce that. That's a great marketplace for up and comers to put stuff on whether it's free or for money. Um, You have these game jam things that are happening around the world. That's a good way to get exposure. I'm, I'm grateful every day that itch survives. (laughs) I I don't, they seem to be doing okay to their credit. So I I don't mean to like cast a a dark cloud over that. They seem like they're doing fine. It's hands down the single best way to host a game jam. Now I've done it myself. It's great. Uh, So I really love what they're doing. And, they have a great system for press accounts. They were the first place to accept me. Uh, I just sent them a link to a couple things I had done, and I can play most of the games on that get submitted to Itch if I want to do articles and lists and stuff. It's, they make it very simple. That's great. So long live Itch. Yeah, long live Itch. Yeah, so a lot of who I interview in the book are composers. And even as a kid, I was so obsessed with video game music, I would take a tape recorder and put it next to my computer speakers and just walk to different rooms in like Gabriel Knight or Space Quest and just record on an audio cassette, even though you get like really bad distortion that way. <laughs> I didn't know any better. Yeah, I, Like the cassette deck, I still miss it for some dumb reason, but like it had a handle so you could carry it around, but it had no output uh, plugs. Yeah. Like, it just had a shitty microphone built in near the front of the device, right? And that was it. I can picture it because everybody had the same one. <laughs> I think so. Yeah, I even used that when I did my first, yeah, my first big in-person press interview in college with Paul Hogan for a Crocodile Dundee in Los Angeles. Oh, awesome! <laughs> and I didn't want to spend the money for a digital recorder, which were about two hundred bucks at the time. So I had this chonky <laughs> twenty-dollar Radio Shack. A cassette deck. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That reminded me of uh, uh, just a very funny, stupid thing that I did one time. One of the big names associated with the uh, X-Men animated series from the 90s was at an event in my area, but only about 15 or 18 minutes from here. Uh, mm-hmm. they, they were at this convention at a hotel, and I didn't really, at that time, figure out who that was, and I... I went to do interviews at this thing with one of those little handheld recording devices, which crapped out. And at the last minute, I grabbed my friend's iPhone and used two iPhones like two microphones. This actually led to very good sound. So if you're ever in a pinch, that's something worth trying. But the, the people I got were two people at my friend's indie comic label. And then we did not talk to this uh, animator from <laughs> the uh, oh. fantastic nineties uh, X-Men series. And so that's really, that's the biggest one that got away from me to this day. <laughs> I had to record interviews on an iPhone for, I guess you'd call it the third video game music show I've done. I did it for maybe a year at KBU FM in Portland, Oregon. I was at the Portland retro gaming expo and talked to the, this YouTube guy, uh, the gaming historian. Yeah. Oh yeah. And he he's, does real good stuff. And uh, I just would, I asked him, 
you know, what's what are some what's a video game piece of music that means a lot to you? And his response initially was like, come back in a few hours. I need to think about it. Oh. So I came back in a few hours and sure enough, he had an answer for me. So that was cool. Unfortunately, because I just was recording it on the iPhone, I held up the microphone end to my mouth and not to his. So um, <laughs> <laughs> there's no winning, you know, it's, it's there's, there's no winning. I tried to, you know, balance the audio the best I could, but oh, well. I, I love that this is a focus for you because I, you know, I come from a musical background myself, so I'm always sort of thinking about that when I'm interacting with games. And the first couple of times I heard a noteworthy composer speak about, you know, their process and what they mm-hmm. what they're thinking and feeling when they do this work. I uh, not to discredit anybody. It sounds like nonsense. It's, it just sounds like touchy feely. Like, what are you even talking about? And if you really put time into it like you have, and you start to get some feedback from uh, many very talented, very gifted people who do this, they start to sound like they're kind of on the same wavelength. And it's like, maybe there is something there that they are in touch with and I'm not, and their stuff sounds like this, and mine sounds like filth. You know, it's like they definitely do have this wavelength that they're sort of on and they're in this zone. And it's it's fascinating because, I mean, it's almost too difficult to even put into words. But to hear them talk about it is is, everybody should should do it. Who's involved in music because it's really something else. Yeah. um, One of the earlier interviews I did for this book, um, you know, originally way back in the day was Frank Klopacki who is mostly known for doing music for like Dune 2 and a lot of the Command and Conquer games. In his interview, he really goes on about, I think one of the first games he did a music for is like Dragon Strike on the NES, and then moved on to, to things like Carandia or Command and Conquer, or even did the music for Blade Runner, which used a lot of licensed music uh, by Vangelis from the film. And mm-hmm. to just get that sort of... Uh, the evolution of how music changed over time, I think in the Frank, in the Frank Klopacki interview and in the Al Lowe interview where he talks about how awful it is to compose PC speaker music where it was more <laughs> like programming and uh, it was painful to listen to is, is something I really like about the, these pieces I did for this book. I and, wish, you know, the only thing I, I regret is that so many of them were email interviews and because of that, you didn't have a lot of back and forth. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's something that, when I did my first Skype interview, I, I thought, you know, it's it's strange and this is a little bit awkward, but at least I've sort of got him on the hook till I say, like, you know, obviously if he says he's going to go, he's going to go. But I, I've got him here. And as long as I can figure out what I'm going to need to know later, I've got this guy and I can I can do this back and forth. So doing it over email is is a much different game, seems much more difficult. Yeah, it's it's impressive that you managed to get really anything of value through through those means i mean sometimes it's all you got right uh and i would say if i was giving advice to someone looking to do interviews for people you know look on their website for a contact or now you can look at their twitter page although if you send them a tweet they probably won't respond and yeah just keep an email or or tweet or whatever you're doing that's short and to the point and then when you get them for the interview, uh, like a good way to sell them on it and say, hey, you know, do you want to talk for I can do a 10 minute interview or, or say nine minutes because that's a bit stranger just to get their attention. Yeah. And and then once you have them on, do your research, do your homework, have a list of questions you want to ask, but then be prepared to throw it away because I, I can't tell you how many interviews I did early on in my career where I just asked question after question like a robot 
not even <laughs> listening to what the other person is saying because ideally you want it to kind of flow like a conversation even though you're complete strangers. Yeah, yeah. This is so funny because I was just talking to my wife about this because across so many different professions and specialties, and this is going to be probably the big moral takeaway from this episode, if in fact we have one, which is fine. <laughs> but, uh, um, I got into podcasting because I felt like I was not a good natural communicator. I had a variety of issues with uh, speaking and, and hearing, and I learned that the big one was listening. Everybody thinks they can listen, but the more you do it, the more you learn. There's a whole nother level of listening that only the most successful people, the best communicators actually understand. And real listening, like just like you said, you come into a conversation or a meeting with a plan of attack, you sort of know the, the direction the narrative is going to go. But if the answer to the first question is like, you know, tell me about the years when you worked at Walmart and that person says, I never worked at Walmart. And you go, oh, you know, you can't throw the next question like, what was your manager at Walmart like? You know, it's That's like right. conversations are about adapting as a result of really hearing what the other person said. And like you said, it's hard to look back at your own old writing. If I go back to my own old podcast, I can find bad Ooh. examples of that that hurt to listen to <laughs> because it's it's. It seems like disrespect to the other person that was totally unintentional. It was just that I didn't have the ability to hear the way I needed to hear because I was too up in my own head. Sure. Um, I guess another piece of advice I would give, not that I want to dwell too much on this as we wrap things up, yeah. is have a silly question in there just to throw them off a bit. Because so many these people, are, especially as they get more famous or whatever, your time with them is limited and they answer a lot of the same damn questions over and over again. So one, like listen to other interviews, especially from places that you like that talk to the same person to know what stuff has already been asked, but have like a silly question to make them laugh or to kind of loosen them up a bit. One I did not on this book, but it was a, a guest I had on my sequel cast, a movie podcast was with Steve Barron, who directed the first live action Ninja Turtles movie. He also yeah. did the music video for Take On Me, a very famous music video. Yeah. And I, because we, it was to tie into an episode about Ninja Turtles, I was asking him, what's your favorite pizza topping? <laughs> and he paused for like 20 seconds <laughs> and he goes, pepperoni, of course. And it, it's good to have dumb questions like that. I think just to loosen them up or just to throw them off, because whether you're giving an interview or whether you're being interviewed, you just kind of fall into doing the same robotic answers. And it's not its not that the person is lazy or that uninspired, but it's just sort of out of a force of habit. Yeah, yeah. And you want yeah. to shake that up a little bit. Absolutely. I think that's good advice that people can – because, I mean, you know about this. I mean, anything in the game industry, it really is a lot of interaction between people, even if you think you're doing like a solo indie. There are people you mm. need to communicate with and there's things you need to get out of that and there's goodwill you need to extend. And so the communication aspect of it is just so, so important. So uh, before I let you go, let us know what your favorite pizza topping is. Okay. <laughs> I, I will say it's one that uh, the Ninja Turtles scared me for years. But when I finally tried this, it was uh, quite a delight. I'm talking about anchovies. I like fish. I like salt. They taste like super concentrated salt fish bombs on a pizza. <laughs> and it's a, uh, it's an acquired taste that if you, if, if you, if you're adventurous, when you go eat sushi, try anchovies next time you get a pizza. 
I never thought you made that connection before I did. I, of course, any any young turtle fan would be concerned about anchovies, and I was too, and I didn't realize that's probably why that was. And when I tried them, I liked it. So, How about uh, that. It's, it's, there's the takeaway is anchovies. <laughs> <laughs> so so uh, what's next project wise? I mean, are you going back to the, the film book or uh, what's next? A mixture of a few things. I have some big um, pitches out to some different venues regarding books, but I am starting work on volume two of the three volume uh, Uwe Boll magnum opus I'm doing. Hmm. Um, the most difficult thing was uh, this first chapter. Uh, so the other two remaining Uwe Boll books are about his other non-video game films, and I'm just calling volume two the early drama films, and volume three is the later drama films. And as part of that, his only work is in German. And although there was an Amazon exclusive set that's out of print on the early Uwe Boll films, some of those don't have any subtitles. Oh. So, so what do you do? I don't really speak. I dropped <laughs> out of a German class in college, but that's it. So yeah. I used uh, a website that did AI technology to translate from German into English somewhat poorly and basically made my own not very good subtitles to review some of these early movies that don't have an official subtitle release. So <laughs> it's better than nothing. I don't think those would be the best chapters. You've worked nearly but, as hard as he has on this stuff. Oh, I don't know about that, but sure. It's, <laughs> it, it is um, the letter, I, the email I got from Uwe Boll about the first book. He said he read it in one sitting and he thought it was an important piece of work. I'm paraphrasing here because it had to do, it actually described what happened in the movies, which on the surface I, I think is kind of a strange comment, but I think what he's trying to say is maybe in a lot of reviews of his movie, people talk more about Uwe Boll, the person than the movie itself. I could see that. Yeah. And certainly a goal in the books is to sort of have a more, I was trying to solve the mystery. If people have the criticism that Uwe Boll's movies make no sense, why not describe the plot in painful detail <laughs> to try and make these things make sense? Right. Right. That's, that's kind of my mission statement, but uh, so we'll see how that goes. I hope to have those two out before the end of the year. Uh, it might bleed into 2021 a bit. We'll just see what happens. And otherwise, I wouldn't mind getting back into uh, game development again. I, I've been flirting with a few different programs. And I, I think uh, the Adventure Game Studio, I wouldn't mind learning a lot of. I, I tried to teach myself that one in college to make graphic adventures, but there wasn't much out there. But yeah. now with YouTube tutorials, uh, especially for someone like me who's very visual, it's much easier to get the basics down on something. Oh, yeah. You, can, you can't help but learn these things now. It's pretty awesome. Yeah. So uh, for interested folks, where can people uh, reach you and uh, follow what you're up to? Yeah, so I think number one is probably on Twitter, at M-A-T-W-B-T. I have a website, uh, matwbt.com, that lists uh, links to my books and some of my recent articles. Otherwise, you can find uh, me doing blog posts on Fanatical. Uh, sometimes I'm on Hardware Gaming 101. And my podcast is um, called SequelCast 2 and Friends. It's at SequelCast2.com. And I have an announcement here that I guess is an exclusive because by the time this episode drops, but we recently became part of the Greenlit Podcast Network, which is a host of such podcasts as Retronauts, 
and uh, Hardcore Gaming 101. Nice. Good company. That's good. Thank you. Congrats. Yeah. So uh, great. Another great uh, visit with you. And <laughs> I'll look forward to hearing about the, uh, the next couple of projects next time we talk. Sounds great. Thanks, Todd. Congratulations on your game dev breakdown, whatever that is. Sounds idiotic to me.